you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, please open it to the book of Exodus. If you don't have one with you this morning, you can borrow one from the pocket in the pew in front of you. Uh, Exodus is pretty easy to find. If you open your Bible and you find it's open to Exodus, you're there. If you find that it's open to Genesis, go one book in. If you find it's open anywhere else, you've gone too far and you need to retreat back to the front and then follow from step one all over again. It's the second book of our Bible, and we are beginning a new series through the book of Exodus. And it's a series that I am, I am very excited for. I'm probably far too excited. I don't want to get my hopes up for anything grand. But I am excited, uh, not only because it is the Word of God, but because I love the story of Exodus. And I think many people love the story of Exodus. The point of what we are going to do today, as you will see that in the the bulletin, it just says that I'm preaching on the book of Exodus. That is not our entire sermon series here yet today. Uh, we are just going to do kind of a flyover of Exodus, but it's going to be different than the flyover we did when we entered into the book of Romans. So when we did the book of Romans, we were really focusing on the book of Romans itself, but Exodus provides us with some better things, but also some more difficult things to do that in. Because the book of Exodus is the second of five books that are really connected together. The first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch, are kind of one continuous story. Sometimes they loop back on themselves a little bit, but they're one continuous story. And certainly Exodus is the continuation of the story of Genesis. And even so, what we're going to find is that the story does not end with Exodus, but it continues on even down until the age of Jesus Christ and further down to us. And so when we do our overview this morning, we are not seeking simply to talk about the book of Exodus, but to talk about the context of Exodus. We're picking up in volume two of a story that has already begun, and so it would do well if we set the context. We're going to do that by looking at what has come before, what the book of Exodus is about, and then what comes after, if you want to take it in sort of a, a three-turned approach. Certainly, the heart of the matter and the question before us is what is the book of Exodus trying to tell us? What would we lose if the book of Exodus wasn't given to us? Would it just be the loss of a fantastic story, the loss of a, a pretty decent Charlton Heston movie, uh, maybe a kind of a, an okay cartoon, or is it the loss of something much more than that? I would suggest that it is the loss of a beautiful and true and incredibly important picture of what Jesus has actually given to us in our redemption. So as we fly over the book of Exodus today, let us think about the context, the nature, uh, and the symbols of Exodus, and then the fulfillment of Exodus. Let's start first with the content of the book of Exodus, the context, excuse me, of the book of Exodus. To truly understand what Exodus as a story is trying to tell us, we need to know that we are picking up in the middle of that story. It is indeed a story, but I don't want to, by using that term, make you think that it's a story that isn't true, it's a story that is just symbolic for other things. I do think that the meaning of the symbols is that there's something else out there. I do think that the meaning of Exodus is pointing beyond itself, but I don't think that that means that Exodus is not full of real and true things. It is real history. It is true history. But that story begins all the way back. It is a story that begins at the very beginning of Genesis and the creation of mankind in Adam and in Eve. And I want to point out just sort of four things, four promises or blessings that come forward in the book of Genesis 
that get erased or at least severely damaged by the fall that God seems to be trying to pick back up as we move through Genesis and into Exodus. Clearly, you could probably pick out, I think, 20 or 30 things, but these are four pretty general things that we're going to talk about. The first thing that God gives as a blessing to people is nothing less than life. In the very beginning, God creates man in his own image, and he breathes life into mankind. He breathes life into Adam, and he takes from Adam a rib and forms Eve around it. Life is given as a blessing by God in the first chapters of Genesis. Along with that, there is implicit in those chapters of Genesis the presence of God, which is indeed a blessing that God dwells with Adam and Eve. He walks with them. He speaks with them. He knows who they are. They know who he is. He is present in an intimate way with them and is always there around them. He gives them life. He gives them presence. Thirdly, he gives them land. This is one of the first things we read when God creates Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 26 of the book of Genesis. Then God says, let's make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's give them dominion over the land. He says, I'm going to give you the land, and he's going to tell them later to rule over it. That idea is, is yes, it's a command, but it's, it's the command that I might give to my kids when we go down to the beach in Florida, and they look at me and I say, dive in, right? It's not, it's not a command as much as it is an open permission. Go and have fun and enjoy. And when God says that you are to have rule and dominion over these things, he doesn't just mean that you're going to go out and do hard work, and I want you to make it look pretty for me. He means that the earth will respond to you. It will do the things that you call it to do. It will respond to you in a way in which we probably can't even grasp today because everything has been ruined and hurt by the fall. But they are given land, and that land is to respond to them in a miraculous way. Lastly, they are given children. They are told to multiply and to make children. Verse 28, God says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are given progeny. They're given children, and they're told to go out. And this is indeed another blessing by God. Four blessings. Life, presence, land, and progeny. Four blessings that are given to them, two implicit, two explicit, that God presents to his people. And in the fall, each of them is ruined. Adam and Eve listen to the voice of the serpent over the voice of God, and they fall and all of a sudden, instead of this ease of children and going out and filling and multiplying, God says, no, there will be pain in childbirth. That Eve was to experience glory in the giving birth of children, but now there will be pain in childbirth. I don't think that that's just referring to pain in, in labor and pain in giving birth, but I think it's pain in motherhood altogether. Certainly that will be evident in chapter 4 when Cain murders Abel. There will be pain and anguish and anxiety for mothers it doesn't mean that there isn't for fathers, just like the toil of the land isn't just for men, it is also there for women. But nevertheless, there is now pain in childbirth. More than that, the, the promise of land, the blessing of land is also ruined. So Adam is still going to rule and, and work the land, but he is going to only gather from it by the toil and the sweat of his brow. No longer will it just give to him the things that he wants. He won't rule over it as one with authority, he will rule over it as one taking authority. There will be a fight now. Thirdly, 
They are exiled from the presence of God. God sends them out of the garden. And in the last verses of chapter 3, we hear that God stations an angel at the entrance to the garden so that no one may enter back in. And fourth, and most importantly, and the thing that dominates the early chapters of Genesis is that no longer is life freely given, but death is due to all. God had given life, but he warned them, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. This was such a strong, strong statement by God that it is the one thing that the devil can't ease up on. He can't massage. He can't kind of change. He's got a flat-out lie about this, and he says, you will not surely die. Chapter 3, they do indeed listen to him. Chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. Chapter 5, a genealogy which lists nothing but dead men, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Chapter 6, the earth is filled with violence and bloodshed. Chapter 7, 8, and 9 comes a flood by which God brings death upon all things save Noah and his family. It is not a stretch to say that the opening chapters of Genesis focus almost solely on death pervading all of creation. And then, as we move forward, we hear these really wondrous words in chapter 12 that come out of nowhere and stand in distinct contradiction to what we have just heard. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You should hear that word blessed as the prescription of God to say all of the evil that was unleashed on the world by the work of Adam and Eve, all of the curse, all of the horribleness that has come through Adam and Eve, through you, Abraham, I'm going to reverse it. There is cursing that has been brought into the world, but through you, I will bring blessing. As it turns out, that blessing looks an awful lot like reestablishing those other four things that we've already talked about. One of the first things that he promises to Abram is children. In chapter 15, we actually have all of these things kind of together. He, he says, I am your reward, or I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. God, through chapter 12 and 13 and 14, shows that he is continually with Abram, that his presence is with him, unlike his presence has been with anyone else, that God continually stands by him and helps him and guides him and directs him. He says, I will be a shield to you. Abraham then offers this sort of small, careful rebuke, saying, okay, but I don't have any offspring so even if my reward is great, what, what good do I have? And God promises him progeny. He says, I will give you children. I will give you more than you can possibly count. Look up at the night sky. And those children will inherit land. And Abram says, well, how am I supposed to know that? God says, okay, we'll make a covenant for that. So you take a lamb, a half or a cow, you take a goat, you split them in half, and a turtle dove and a pigeon you leave those there, and I will make a covenant with you. You will kill them. I will pass through them saying, basically, if I am lying to you, let me be as these. God promises him presence. God promises him land. And God promises him presence. Interestingly enough, in the middle of all of that, God has a specific word about something that's going to happen in the future 
that he says almost parenthetically that really seems out of place in chapter 15 when he's going through all these promises to Abraham and all the good that he's going to do for Abraham. He says this in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And since God looks at him and says, hey, you know that thing that you want me to make assurances of as far as the land goes, I will do that. But before you do it, you need to know this. You need to listen to me carefully. He says, I'm going to take your children and I'm going to move them to a land that they don't know. In all of this, we have a sort of rebuke to the cursing that's happened. God seems to be overturning all of it. But this promise to send his offspring to Egypt becomes odd. Later on, we we understand that this is probably what Joseph is referring to after he is sold into slavery and he finds himself the second in command in Egypt when his family comes to him and his brothers think that he is going to crush them now because he wants vengeance on them for the evil that they've done to him. And Joseph just flat out says, no, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It is not just that Joseph has this concrete and abstract, both at the same time, understanding of God's sovereignty. It is that. But it's that because I think he knows the word that was spoken to Abram. He knows the word that was spoken to his great-great-grandfather. He says, "I, I realize that this is the fulfillment of everything that was spoken to Abram, that we have come down to Egypt. God is doing this for good. Even so, we ought to notice how Exodus begins. Because while Joseph can say those words, the book of Exodus begins by making it seem like it has not been for the good. When Exodus begins, one of the major things that the book of Genesis introduces, it just never touches again. It never talks about life. It never talks about the overcoming of death. Sure, it will talk about the presence of God with his people. It will talk about the the number of children that Abraham is going to have. It will talk repeatedly about this land that he is going to be given, even that he dwells in today. But even in that promise, he tells Abram, you will die, and Isaac will die, and Jacob will die. The major question of death still lingers over the text. What is God What is he going to do about death? How will God meet challenges that he is going to put his people in in the book of Exodus? Because sending them down to Exodus draws into question everything that he has promised to them. He's promised them land, but they will dwell in a land that is not theirs. He promises them his presence, but as we will see, they have no idea who he really is. He promises them children, and their children are threatened by death in the Nile. This leads us to our second point this morning, and that is the symbolism of Exodus. What is the symbolism of Exodus? What is Exodus trying to tell us? It is, again, odd that this book was even written, that God even wanted to do this. Abraham had everything that he needed to make all of the promises that God made to him come true where he was. He, he had Isaac, 
And more than that, Abraham had a number of kids. He, he could have had the progeny that God wanted him to have as the seed of his offspring. But no, it, it was only through Isaac, God said. And even that was then only going to be through Jacob. God didn't need to do that way. He could have allowed Abraham to flourish in children and Isaac to flourish in children, but he did not. More than that, going down into Egypt took away the land that they were already dwelling in. Abraham clearly already had armies that fought for him. He clearly already had people who followed him. He could win victories. And with the Lord's help, certainly he could overtake the land. God's presence was clearly already there. Why send them down to Egypt, where they will be slaves, where their children threatened with death, where their land is not theirs, where they have forgotten about God? I suspect that the answer to that is simply what the whole land of Egypt is meant to symbolize, and that is death. The lingering question in the book of Genesis is how will God give life? That is the threat that is the promise of disobedience in the first chapters. That is the thing that hangs over the first chapters of Genesis. And now in Exodus, I think we're starting to get that answer. All of the rest of the promises, no matter what they are, in the face of death, they're meaningless. Egypt is, in a sense, the great Old Testament symbol of death. I think the text points us in this direction in a number of ways. First, the fact that he sends them to Egypt instead of other places. Egypt at this time and at other times, and even today, is known for one thing over everything else. It's death. It's known for its tombs, and it's known for its mummies. That was not just the case today in bad movies. It is also the case back then. They were known for their embalming. They were known for the beautiful structures that they would make as far as tombs go. Second, the text gives us a number of directional words that indicates that they're not just going to a foreign land, they're going down to a foreign land. Repeatedly, in Genesis 12, 10, Genesis 26, verses 2 and 3, 37, 25, chapter 39, verse 1, chapter 41, and then even in chapter 46, we hear these words of them going down to Egypt. And to us, that makes perfectly good sense because you wouldn't go up to Egypt because I've seen a map, and Israel is north of where Egypt is, and the only way you get to Egypt is by going south, which we colloquially call going down. We do that because our maps always face north, and because we think of the world as, well, from a couple thousand feet up in the air, by, given to us by satellites. They wouldn't have thought of it that way. Oftentimes, repeatedly, people are said to have gone up to Jerusalem, and that's not just when they go north to Jerusalem. They're said to go up to Jerusalem when they're heading south. There's a really simple reason for that. Jerusalem is built on a hill. In order to go into Jerusalem, you always have to go up to Jerusalem. The use of the word down here is not synonymous with we're going south. It is literally the same word that's used for going down to the pit. It's repeatedly used that way. You will go down. This last reference in chapter 46, verses 3 through 4, is important. This is what God speaks to Jacob. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, 
and will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. It is a descent into death, which is made all the more clear with both how Joseph and his family get there. Joseph is threatened with death by his brothers, and they literally throw him into the pit, which is synonymous with Sheol, the place of the dead. He is sent to the place of the dead. Only when they see people coming by that they can sell and they can say, hey, we can make a little money off of this bloke, do they decide not to kill him. But who's coming? Simply the people who are taking ingredients to embalm the dead to Egypt. Their camels are bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. The very things that are used for embalming. He's literally traveling amongst mummies down to Egypt. More than that, why does the family end up in Egypt? The family ends up in Egypt because there's a famine in the land. There is death. And so to escape death, they've got to go. This is what famine does. Famine sends you to the place of the dead. And it's exactly what happens to their family. They go to the place of the dead. Lastly, there's water. Water, water everywhere. And everywhere you turn, it kills you. The Nile, the source of life for Egypt, is nothing but death in the book of Exodus. One of the first things that happens is that it's turned into blood. But even before that, the children of Israel are threatened by drowning in the Nile. It is a picture of death. That same picture, by the way, reminds us of the flood because the child Moses is saved how? By being put in an ark. Now, it might be a really small ark, quite as large as what Noah made, still lined with pitch, still placed in the waters of death, and still floated to safety. There's the Nile, and there's the Red Sea. The thing that will cause them to die in the end is they stand with their backs against the sea and the army of Egypt before them, and they are certain they will die. Everywhere they turn, there is nothing but death here for them. So, God sends his people to Egypt because he needs them to know you are going to die. Just like Abraham, just like Isaac, and just like Jacob. But God will redeem them. How? There's basically two sections to the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 14 is God revealing himself and making himself known. Immediately when we come to the text of Exodus, we find out that no one seems to know who God is. Moses comes up to the burning bush, and he doesn't seem to know that this is God. He doesn't know to take his sandals off. He doesn't know that it's a holy place. He stutters and and stops in his his speaking before God, and he says, "I, I don't know that I'm the right man to send on this journey. I don't know that I'm the right man to speak to Pharaoh because I have this problem with speaking. And God says very simply, who do you think made your mouth? If Moses knew who he was, he wouldn't need to worry. The people don't seem to know him. Moses himself is explicit in this. In chapter 3, verse 13, Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He's going to say, I'm going to show up and be like, Hey, great news, guys. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. And they're going to be like, I, Who? who? I, don't, I don't know him. The people of Israel do not know him. Pharaoh doesn't know him. And 5-2, when Moses finally gets around to going in front of Pharaoh and saying, let God's people go, Pharaoh says, 
Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But everyone, Pharaoh, the people, Moses, and Aaron, they will soon all learn who God is. God will show himself to them. He will reveal himself as powerful above the greatest nation on the earth, as powerful above all their magicians, as powerful above all their gods. He will show that he is the God who will deliver his people even from death itself. God who is incredibly mighty. And most importantly, is the God of pure and unadulterated being. This is what it means when Moses goes before the bush and he asks that question back in 3.13. What is the name of the Lord? What am I supposed to tell him? And God, in the next verse in 3.14, says to Moses, I am who I am. That, that phrase, I am who I am. I am what I will be. In other words, I am pure existence. I'm not just a God who creates, like the Greek gods. I'm not just a God who controls, like the Egyptian gods. I am the God who has the only sense of being over all things. All being, all essence comes from me. Therefore, because all existence comes from him, he has the power over existence. He has the power over life and death. And he will show the world, both Egypt and Israel, what it means to know God. And in the end, just as all Egypt didn't know God, God will be known by them. For those who are his people, he will be the one who brings life out of death, who gives being to those things that are not. For those who stand against him, he will be seen to be a terrible judge, one who strikes the mighty and the small and takes vengeance with full and terrible anger, who looks at things that seem immovable, looks at things that seem invincible, and brings them to ash. God will make himself known. And then secondly, in the second half of the book, chapters 16 to 40 or so, God will give his people his presence. God provides for them, not just in giving them life from the dead, but allowing them to exist where life shouldn't exist. He provides manna in the wilderness out of nothing, and he provides water out of a rock. He is not just a God who makes you alive and allows you to peter your way through life, trying to maintain your life. He is a God who not only makes you alive, but keeps you alive. God provides for their social needs by giving them laws and telling them how they are to live. He provides for their religious needs by being near to them, telling them how to worship him. This includes a very long section, which is incredibly important, if we think it boring, very important about what the tabernacle is to look like, how it is to be made. Because it is, in its very essence, a new Eden. God is saying, remember that garden that you were kicked out from? I'm redoing it. You are going to have a part in it. This is where you meet me. This is where you are with me. This is where you come to worship. And you might leave those chapters thinking, everything's good now. We, we've got God's presence with his people. They seem to be, have pulled out of death, so now they have life. They seem to be posed to take the land that God has promised to them, and their children are now safe. And here's where we find out that not everything has worked as we quite think. The people were delivered from death, and the promises of God seem to be coming true. 
But as it turns out, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of people. And they pine and they long for what they've left behind. Moses, receiving the instructions of the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments, is up on the mountain, and they don't know of him, they don't see of him for 40 days, and they say, well, then let's make a God for us. They long for the gods of death that they have known, so they make an image of a bull, the same kind of gods they would have left in Egypt. They pine for the food of death that they would have known. They pine for the life of death that they would have known. They pine for the slavery that they would have known. They turn in the end from the life-giving God back to the gods of their captivity. And Moses intercedes for them, pleading for God to be true to his word, even when God offers Moses an amazing opportunity to be his own nation. Moses turns it down, saying, no, God, you must be true to your word. You cannot destroy this people. All of your promises must come true. In the end, we see the hollowness of what Exodus does, even as it promises so much more. You think of Easter candy. What is the best Easter candy of all time? It's Cadbury egg. For those of you who in your mind were thinking, peeps, like Moses, I will pray for you. It's a Cadbury egg, and that chocolate outside hides the most wondrous filling of all time. And one time, I bit into one of those, and there was nothing inside. And it wasn't a Cadbury egg, it's just a chocolate chunk. As nice as that is, it's not what I was promised, and it isn't the fulfillment that you were hoping for. That's exactly what Exodus looks like. It has, it has all the looks of something that ought to be everything that they hoped for. It has all the, the right formation to it. Everything seems to be going the way it ought to be going. But there's nothing there in the end. It's empty and it's hollow and it, it can't quite give them what they need. In the end, we find out the sin has to be dealt with. None of God's promises will stand while sinful people still walk the earth. Death and separation from God will inevitably happen, and no true blessings can ever really exist. The promise seems to be there, and all seems well, but something is wrong in the end. The exodus does not fulfill the very thing it promises to fulfill. Therefore, let us third turn to the fulfillment of exodus. And it should come as no surprise that exodus is quite fulfilled in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. This is the final reality that Exodus was always pointing toward. You can probably find this in a number of different places, in a number of the Gospels, but I think the best one to see it in is the Gospel of John, who John, I think, is going out of his way to picture Jesus as part of this sort of Exodus. After all, the first miracle that Jesus performs of the seven perfect miracles. John, by the way, cuts way down on the miracles. You go to Matthew, Jesus is performing miracles all over the place. They don't even have numbers associated with them. But John is very deliberate in the miracles that he puts forward. Seven of them. There were ten plagues. Ten being complete. But Jesus has seven miracles showing his perfection. Those miracles are different than the plagues. The plagues are of destruction and judgment. His promises are a provision, or his miracles are a provision, healing, and life. Because Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but to save it. The first of those miracles is not the changing of water into blood, 
but the changing of water into wine. The last of those miracles is not leading a nation out, but raising a man from the dead. Jesus is showing himself to be God in the flesh. He was not recognized just as God was not in Exodus, but his works make him known. He repeatedly says in the Gospel of John, if you don't believe my words, look at the things that I'm doing. I am claiming to be God? Yes. Look at the things I'm doing and tell me if they're wrong or right. Not only does Jesus promise in the first part of the book that he is God, in the second part of the book, he reminds them that he will be with them taking a long time out before he departs to be with the Father to remind them that I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the Spirit to be with you who will lead you into all truth. John 8, Jesus tells us what our true enslavement is, not to the powers of the world, not to the nations who might try to oppress us, but to nothing less than our sin. John eight thirty four, Jesus answers and says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus affords us the work that we need. Not simply giving us redemption and making us dead in our hearts to try and force ourselves to love and to live before God, but giving us birth from above, birth from heaven giving us a redemption in our hearts, moving us to be regenerated and truly come alive before God. So not only will we be driven into the wilderness of the world, but we will do it happily because God is with us, entrusting ourselves to God and all that he does. Exodus is indeed, truly, the redemption of God's people from death. But if we're honest, those people were never quite alive. And unless the Lord has worked upon you, you too will never quite be alive. Paul says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He means that you were so doomed to die that you were already considered dead. How can you make yourself alive again? How can you make yourself live? Exodus is the great answer to that question. Or at least it points us to a picture. And that picture reminds us of the great answer to that question. Adam and Eve were not just promised an eventual death. They left that garden the walking dead. Yet God promised that God himself would give through Abraham a blessing to the world. That blessing is nothing short of life from the dead and life for the dead. So God gives us a picture of what that looks like. He sends his people to Egypt, to the place of the dead, that he might bring them out again because he is life and gives life to whom he will. He is the resurrection and the life. So Exodus is redemption, but it is not ultimately their redemption. It is our redemption. How do the dead live again? The God who is nothing less than true and complete being, the God who is life in and of himself, he will come to them. He will visit them. And by knowing him and his presence with them, they will live again. This is the God pictured in Exodus. This is the God embodied in Jesus. And by faith, this God is ours. This, this is the book of Exodus. Thanks be to our God. Let's pray.
our God, what a great redemption you have given to us. Deserving death, living in death, yet you have promised life and life eternal to us. You have given us life from the dead. You have taken us out of our own slavery and made us co-heirs with Christ. You have done what no power on this earth could do. You have done what no work of our hands could ever do. You have freed dead people from Sheol. You have given life to those who had no life. You have redeemed a sinful people to be yours and made them right before you. May your redemption be known far and wide, for in the gospel is the glory of our God. Amen. If you would, stand and sing our song of response, Be Thou My Vision.